I love the partnerships that Crossroads has. We're so grateful for how they partner with us here on the West Side and the partnerships in Africa and around the world. Hearing those every Sunday gets me so charged up about what God's doing through Crossroads, through the, in the nations, and I am just overwhelmed at uh, the grace that we experience here. So in the same way that Crossroads is loving the nations, they're loving their neighbors well. They're doing it here at home as they do it abroad. And uh, we can learn a lot from the church in Africa, church around the world that's working together. I hope to see that more and more, and we're hoping to see that even here on the west side. So we moved in to the neighborhood about a year, a little over a year ago. We just launched a first missional community, and we're very excited about what God's doing here on the west side and, and through Crossroads. Not only are we birthing a church, but as you heard, we're expecting our third child, and we have no idea what we're having. It's a surprise. We know it's a baby, but it's a surprise <laughs> what, what uh, sex the baby is, and so I keep being encouraged by people. We, we have twin boys that are almost four, and uh, we're, we're starting all over again. And people say, well, hey, good news is going from two to three is the hardest. And I'm like, great, perfect. Thank you very much. So you can pray for us as we go from man to man to zone defense uh, soon. We're, we're on our way to that. And got any advice for us, we'd welcome that. But I'm reminded of being in the operating room with my wife because having twins is high risk and they had us in the operating room in case something went bad. And I was sitting there next to my wife and she was pushing and she looked up at me in a moment of desperation and said, I don't know if I can do this. And so with all the compassion I could muster up, I said, I don't think you have a choice. And I also said something very sensitive, like, women throughout all history have done this. You got this. <laughs> so, moments later, my firstborn son, Jackson, comes out. And even though I'm not overly compassionate, I was overwhelmed with emotions. And tears started streaming down my face as I saw this little screaming child. And I was like, I'm a dad. And I was overwhelmed with such joy and such love that I can't even describe it. There's no words. Those of you who have been there know what I'm talking about. Moments later, Caden came out and he screamed even louder. And I was overwhelmed with even more emotion. Couldn't believe that I get to be a dad. Now, if we look at the facts of this, right? Two babies coming out of my wife and the amount of time that they're going to rob from my wife and I, the hours that they're going to wake us up in the middle of the night, absurd hours for crazy feedings. We, we'd spend an hour and a half feeding them, and then we would sleep for an hour and a half, and we would be up for an hour and a half feeding them. That was our rhythm. Pretty awesome. And, and the, uh, the astronomical cost, you look at the facts of that, and that's pretty good birth control, Right? For the rest of you in the room, you think, that's not a good idea. 
But when you look at the emotional response that happens, the love that comes through us to those children, that's something that you can't describe in facts. That's not something you can describe in, in knowledge. It's, it's a love from the Father in heaven that flows through us to these children. And it's a fingerprint of us on the world. It's our heritage. It's a part of who we are. And so this overwhelming love is just a small, tiny picture that we have of the Father's love, of his incredible love for us. And Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 15 about the Father's love to help us understand more of his love. And we're going to look at that this morning. I would love for us to stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his life between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and, then, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your life with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, we need 
you to teach us this morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our hearts, that you would use the, the word of God along with your power to awaken it in our hearts this morning, that we might feel and experience and know your love that surpasses knowledge. We ask for you to do a work in our hearts, open our hearts, help our ears to hear. We thank you so much for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's actually another story in the Old Testament that was understood as Israel's story. There's two brothers in that story, and one of them took the inheritance from the other. Any idea what story I'm referring to? Jacob and Esau. I heard a few people say it. You are exactly right. And the story of Jacob and Esau was actually Israel's story. Jacob was renamed Israel. Kenneth Bailey actually believes that Jesus is retelling the story of Jacob and Esau. The younger brother takes the inheritance... uh, Both younger brothers take the inheritance that should have been the elder brothers using dishonorable methods and leave for a far country. Both younger sons seek inheritance from the father and succeed. Both elder brothers have anger. And in both stories, the younger son is estranged from the older brother and exiled from the land, and they eventually return. So Jesus tells a new story that follows a lot of the outline of the old. And as I've already said, Israel takes on the identity of Jacob. The real difference between these stories, there's, there's definitely some differences, but the key difference is the difference of the father. Jacob and Esau have a dad who's dysfunctional. They long for their dad's acceptance. Isaac was old, blind, and about to die. He played favorites, had dysfunctional family, a lot of lying, scheming, and deceit. His wife and him don't seem to have the greatest relationship as as she's deceiving him. There seems to be a lot of brokenness. And I'm actually bivocational as a counselor as well, and I see a lot of brokenness. And I'm actually of the opinion that every family has brokenness. Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. And so what we see in this story, it's probably not too far off from a lot of our stories. Brothers fighting, mom and dad having favorites, some lies and deceiving and broken relationship. So this isn't just Israel's story that Jesus is retelling, it's our story as well. So today, we're going to learn the family story. All right? That's, that's the goal, that this isn't just us story, this is meant to be our story. The different kind of father, Isaac, instead of Isaac who plays favorites and is on his deathbed and blind, we have a father who loves generously, defeated death, and sees all. So look at the generosity of the father. In verse 12, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of of the estate. So he divided his life between them. I, I get a little uncomfortable with the generosity of the father. The father knows what this son's planning. It's not a surprise. And the father just gives him freely, sells all his, or part of his stuff, gives it to his son, even though he knows his son is going to waste it. If, I want you fathers to think about your son coming to you and asking this request. I think in our culture, it would be quite offensive. And we would probably want to teach our sons a lesson, our daughters a lesson, if they were going to do this to us. 
But in this culture, it was even more offensive. Familial culture, the village, it was shameful. It was even more of an offense. But the father gives freely to his son, even though he knew he was going to be exiled from them. It actually reminds me of the Garden of Eden, creating this beautiful environment for Adam and Eve. All the animals, it's perfect. He walks with them in the cool of the day. And he says, by the way, just one thing, please don't eat from the tree. Just please don't eat from that tree. And, and we, we look in the story and we ask the question, will the son remember the giver and treasure the gift? Or will he choose to exile himself like Adam and Eve did and grieve his dad's heart? Because we've already read the story, we know that he chooses to grieve his father's heart. So this love from the father is costly. He knows it's going to cost him something. The father remains the father. He doesn't cut off the relationship. If this happened, it could be easy to go one of two extremes. Either be a dad that's keep trying to give him money to win his favor. Not that we have that at all in our cultures where, where we just enable our kids. Or cut off the relationship and say, forget you. You're not my son anymore. You can't have any of this money. Either of those would have been easy, but the father remains the father. He doesn't cut off the relationship or sever it to survive. He holds out the broken end of his rope, hoping that the son will come home and return it. You see, this is the path of suffering. The father's suffering makes it possible for the son to return. You know, I think everyone in this room longs for a father like that. We all long for a father like that. I know there's many in this room who grew up without fathers. And I know there's many in this room who have very distant fathers as well. And if you're like me, I had an amazing father, phenomenal father, but he still made mistakes. And our hearts are made for a father who is perfect, who loves us perfectly. So there are thousands of, of father wounds throughout Our culture in this room, there's father wounds everywhere. As a matter of fact, I grew up really struggling viewing God as shepherd. I had a dad who is an awesome man, loved us so much, but was very performance-oriented. And so when we performed well, when we did really well at things, he said, without knowing it inadvertently, he said to us, you're more valuable. If you do well at those things, I value you more. And if you don't do well at things, I don't value you nearly as much. And so I grew up believing that love is conditional, that if I perform well, I am more worthwhile. And I struggle with that. I struggle with that. And I really struggled with seeing God as my shepherd. And as I got into counseling to, a little secret about counselors, most counselors go into counseling to work out their own issues. So... (laughs) If you go to a counselor, just make sure they're at least in process of working through their own issues or else it's going to be a real mess. So I've got a slide that talks about how we attach to our family of origin, which I believe is fascinating. This is not just, this is not just a story that Jesus is telling. He's telling our story. Let me explain. If, as kids, we have to attach or we die. It's, it's absolutely essential. So we learn to either over-attach or under-attach. And so the avoidant, if you look at the avoidant, we're going to look specifically at the avoidant and the anxious preoccupied. The avoidant, notice how it says positive self and negative others. 
It means that the avoidant attachment style overattaches to self and has a lacking amount of identity to other people. It doesn't mean that they don't have friendships. It doesn't mean that they don't connect with other people. It just means that they put an inordinate amount of their identity in themselves. And they tend to be high on truth because they know what they want and low on grace. All right? So have you ever met anybody that says they're a truth teller and you think to yourself, you're not a truth teller, you're a jerk. You know, that's, that's this kind of attachment style. The way we attach in our family of origin is how we attach in other relationships. It's how we attach in our relationship with God. And so this creates a very performance-oriented perspective. This is what I believe the, the younger brother is, is battling with. He says to his dad, I wish you were dead. I want all my stuff. I don't care how it affects you. I don't care how it affects the community. I know what I want, and I want it right now. So he put an inordinate amount of his identity in what he wanted and what he felt. He was a rule breaker, right? Because he doesn't care how he comes across to other people. He knows what he wants. These are very performance-oriented people, and they do performance in order to cover themselves. They don't want people to see their brokenness. Well, the elder brother is very performance-oriented as well. So if we look at the anxious preoccupied, it's negative self, positive others. But the reason the elder brother performs is completely opposite of why the younger brother performs. The elder brother performs because he wants people to like him. He wants their approval. He's anxious for their approval. And so he puts an inordinate amount of his identity in what other people say about him and a lacking amount of identity in himself. He's high on grace, low on truth. And you guys think, well, that sounds awesome. It's because that's our culture that we're in. We're in a very passive culture, a culture where we put an inordinate amount of our identity in what everybody else says and what the community says around us, but a lacking amount in what others say about us. And this works great, the passive works great, until we get really resentful and it doesn't work out for them. We're going to see that with the elder brother later in the story. He's a rule follower, and he believes because he's following the rules, he deserves to be treated right. They seek approval. And no matter what it is, everybody alive has an attachment tendency. Everybody in this room has attachment tendency. Anybody with an attachment disorder has an addiction across the, board, uh, across the line. But everybody has an attachment tendency. And so I really believe, as I was reading through this, and we'll see even more of it in a little bit, that, that this isn't just Israel's story. This is our story. And he, Jesus, is telling us how we work apart from the Father's love. So underneath our attachment, we tend to be performance addicts and seeking approval. We tend to always be trying to create our own coverings. We're, we're trying to earn our earthly father's favor. We long to hear the father say, you have what it takes. We love you. You're acceptable. And as a matter of fact, because of our brokenness, we're seeking this approval and this performance, and it's, it becomes a dominant narrative. There's research that talks about about 10,000 hours being how long it takes to create a dominant habit. And we only have a few dominant habits in our lives, and the dominant habits come from our family of origin because 10,000 hours is a long time. The fascinating thing about this 10,000-hour rule is that it's about three years, which is significant because Jesus spent about three years with his disciples. 
And I believe what he was, re, what was, he was doing was reparenting them in the Father's love. Saying, instead of your earthly father and what he said about you, instead of you seeking performance and approval, the heavenly father says over you, you are loved. And you need to hear that and receive that. In verse 19 and 21, we look at the son saying, I am no longer worthy. I am worthless. I, am, I can't do this. Even though he understands his worthlessness and his shame, he still is not repentant at this point. You see, he comes up with a new performance plan as he comes home. I'll work it off. I'll be one of the hired servants. I'll work off my debt. The problem is he could never work off the debt. It's not about the money. It's about the broken relationship. You can't work off that kind of debt. Somebody has to pay it for you. So his performance addiction doesn't work. And I want you to imagine what it would be like coming into a village half-naked, homeless, smelling like pigs, especially when pigs were not kosher, likely no shoes and rags, you smell, and this is a village like Frodo coming into the Shire, okay? So everybody knows when you leave, and everybody knows when you come home. So he's coming in, and everybody is eager to shame him because of the shame he has brought on his father and them. They are getting ready to perform this kazazah ceremony, and they can't wait. I don't know if you've ever witnessed people who have a lot of shame, and they really like to shame you because it it gets the shame off them, and they can focus it on other people. These people are eager to do it. And in that moment, when he realizes how helpless he is, We see a grown man exposing his legs and becoming shamed and taking all the insults on himself that we so deeply deserve. The son in that moment sees the great suffering that he has put on his father. Last week we talked about how men never ran in this culture except for if they were going into battle. They would run to gain military uh, advantage. And that's the only time they ever shamefully expose their legs because they have to pull their garments up and it's just not cool for a grown man to do that for obvious reasons. And so in this moment, instead of gaining military or personal gain, he's saying, I am willing to shame myself publicly to cover your shame. I'm willing to run and to make sure everyone else looks at my shame in order to cover your shame. I think that is just absolutely beautiful and astronomical love. Not only was he shamed the first time because he had to sell a quarter of his property and give it to his son and his son said, I don't want you, I just want yourself. But he shames himself again so that the village does not perform this on him. You see, the father humiliates himself in front of the whole village. The father here becomes a picture of Jesus being the suffering servant. And in John's gospel, it says, I and the father are one. So the father becomes a picture of Jesus here. You see, Jesus was cut off from the Father and took all the shame upon himself. He became shamefully exposed and naked on the tree so that we can have true intimacy in our relationship with him and others. He races to cover your nakedness and welcomes you into royalty. You see, we don't have to work so hard at covering ourselves with performance and approval. There's a Father who loves us 
and is running to us and wants to cover you. See, we can immediately move from homelessness to from being poor, blind, and naked to being rich, full of life, and royally clothed. This is what's significant about saying the Father gives his life for his children. He gives his very life. The things that are closest to him, he gives away to his children. So in this moment, the son is so overwhelmed with the father's love, as we all would be in that moment. The father embraces him, starts kissing him, and he is so overwhelmed that this kindness leads him to repentance. This takes surrendering his own offering of performing his debt to try to pay off his debt. The father's identity becomes his. Now, something I haven't told you about, if we can go back to the last slide, about the last slide as far as attachment is every attachment disorder has an addiction with it. And I believe that's because we're meant to be addicted to the Father's love. First and greatest commandment, if we look at the secure box, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't think of a better definition for an addiction. Can you? If I loved alcohol with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, that'd be a pretty intense addiction, right? We could fill in the blank with anything else, shopping, clothes, food, anything else. That's, that's an addiction. We have been created to be addicted to the Father's love. Now think about what's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor, others, as you love yourself. So we're supposed to have a positive healthy relationship with others, a positive, healthy relationship with self, and that can only come through a healthy relationship with the Father. As a matter of fact, as we see Jesus at his baptism, and he's, he's being baptized, the Spirit descends on him, and the Father says over him, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what every son, what every daughter longs to hear from their dad. And the other thing that is very significant is Jesus came full of grace and truth. So in this parable contains the gospel within the gospel because it's Jesus' message within the community that bears his name. It's where they discover their identity. You see that sin beneath the sin is always identity issues. So the father says, put a robe on him, clothe him as a son. He's naked, clothe him with the best robe. In the story of Esther, Haman is asked, how do we honor somebody that the king is so grateful for? And Haman says, put the king's robe on him. Clothe him with the king's clothing. And that's what happens to the son here. The father says, put my robe around him. Move him from homelessness to being a highly honored son. Put shoes on him. Servants didn't wear shoes. Sons wore shoes. Welcome him back into the family. He is my son. And he instantly, it's kind of like Cinderella's story, right? Where she goes from being a slave one moment to being a princess the next moment. This son goes from being homeless to being a son of a man who had much wealth. You see, instead of trying to sow our own fig leaves and covering ourselves, we need to recognize that we need a perfect covering in Christ. That we need his righteousness. The Pharisees are really asking, if you go all the way back to verse 2, they're asking, why do you eat with sinners? Why is it that you eat with sinners? When I was younger, I would go up to Traverse City a lot with my cousins, and we would spend time doing different things, getting in trouble. I I tended to be more of a rule breaker growing up. And 
So at one point, we decided to go sledding. And we went sledding on a hill that was fairly steep. And my aunt said to, I think it was her boys, it may have been to all of us, but she said, don't go to the top of the hill. It's too fast, too, too steep. So we were like, okay. And so we get there and we start sledding. And it, that lasted about 10 minutes. And then we disobeyed her. So my cousin, Chad, is at the top of the hill, and he goes sledding down. And my other cousin and I were like, hey, let's try to hit him with a snowball while he's sledding down. Sounds like a great idea, right? I just like the chances, really. Come on now. And so my cousin throws and just is way off. And normally, I'm not very good aim. I promise. I'm really not. So I thought, I'll give it a shot, right? And I throw, and I, seriously, it was like the most amazing, perfect throw. It it goes right toward him, and as he's coming down at a fast speed, my snowball hits him right in the cheek, like right in this region here. And he's young, and it hits him. We hear the smack, and then we hear him burst into tears. And I think, oh, here I go again. More trouble, right? Which is me being about self instead of being like, how's he doing? <laughs> so we go running down the hill, and we get to him, and we're like, is your eyeball okay? You know, can you feel your face? He's like, it's numb, it's red, and he's crying. And my brother says, Chad, that's God's punishment. <laughs> and so we all got quiet for a minute and looked at him. And then we all fell on the ground laughing. Exactly what you guys did. We just started laughing, and I was like, thank you, brother. You just saved me from getting in a lot of trouble. But I tell you that story because a lot of us have that view of God. If you go to the top of the hill and disobey, a snowball is coming your direction. It's like elf, right? They're running, like, poof, hits them. Or a lightning bolt, or something else is coming your direction. And this is what the Pharisees are saying. Hey, these sinners, these These horrible people don't deserve to be treated right. Why are you eating with them? You should be eating with us. We're the people who deserve this. They're the people who deserve the lightning bolt, the snowball in their face. This is not right. So he says, why? Why do you eat with them? And you see, the father is seen as doing exactly what Jesus is doing. He's receiving a sinner and planning to eat with him. His reason is because my vision is to seek and to save those people who are lost and to rejoice when the sons come home. Since the Garden of Eden, the father has grieved the fact that his children have been exiled from him. It just hurts his heart. He just longs to have the family meal around the table where his children are back home. And when one of his children gets it and realizes how broken they are as they're seeking approval and performance and it is not working for them and they turn back to his love, he rejoices. He says, this is what life is all about. Family back together around a meal. This is what the Last Supper is meant to picture, a little bit of a picture of someday the Messianic feast when we are all invited in. So he kills the fattened calf. This is crazy amount of money. This father is so rich, has lots of money, has a hall big enough to have the whole city. And it would be an amazing expense. At great cost, this father reconciles his son to him. The father humiliates himself as he's in the big hall. They're celebrating. His elder 
son should have been greeting the guest, should have been caring for the guest, and instead his elder brother or his elder son does not come in. So the father, once again, chooses to take shame upon himself by leaving his guests and going out to his brother, to his older son. And the word there is the word parakaleo. It means coming alongside, gently coming up alongside the brother and saying, I love you. Why don't you come in? The father offers his compassionate, costly love to both sons. He goes to both sons when both sons should have come to him. The elder son is so angry, he breaks his relationship with his father. You see, in this culture, to not go in at this point is seen as a major insult. By not coming to the banquet, it's seen as shaming his father and shaming him to the point that is as bad, if not worse, than the younger brother. It's like being at a wedding feast and a father and son getting in an argument at a family wedding and the son leaving and not participating. It's shameful to the father. It breaks off the relationship. And those of you who have been following me from the beginning, talking about the story of Jacob and Esau, might be wondering, if Israel is Jacob and is the younger son, why is Israel being compared to the elder brother? Very good question. Wait a second, Aaron. Did you study well enough here? The fascinating thing is that Jesus is saying this. Israel, you were Jacob but you have become Esau. You were the people who received my love and became overwhelmed with my love, but you have become the elder brother. You have become angry. You have become performance-driven. You've slipped back into it. You've slipped back into being approval-driven. You don't know my love. You, Jacob, who is supposed to be overwhelmed with my love, have become Esau. I don't know about you today, But that's so easy for me to slip back into. Once I have received God's love, it's so easy to slip back into duty, to walk away from the cross, to walk away from the grace of God and miss out on God's love for me. As a matter of fact, wherever you are on the one side of this attachment style, you will be the flip side in some relationship. We tend to marry the opposite. You probably have a rule of follower and a rule breaker in your home. You tend to be the opposite of your first, the, the kid born next to you most of the time, not always. So there was a rule follower and a rule breaker. I get a lot of rule breakers in my counseling. They're like, this kid, I tell you, I don't know what's wrong with him. His other son, or my other son is, uh, is an angel, but this one's really messed up. And I wait for a little while to explain to them that they're both learning to get their way. One's just doing it through following the rules and one's doing it through breaking the rules. Um, I wait till I build a relationship a little bit more to tell them that. But we're no different. This is our story. That we are on one side or the other side because we desperately need to hear the Father's love this morning. You see, when we understand his acceptance, forgiveness, and reconciliation, we are compelled to show other people. We want to share with other people. When you first came to know Jesus, you couldn't help but talk about what you had seen and heard. You couldn't help it. You loved to tell people because you had a father who loved you so much that you couldn't help. You you didn't know it was weird to talk about it. You didn't know it was taboo. You're like, guess what? Jesus saved me. It's awesome. And then over time, it starts to wear off a little bit. And and you're like, yeah, you know, Jesus is good, but I'm performing a lot. uh, Do you guys like me a lot? I need you to like me. 
And, and instead of focusing on his love, we become preoccupied with other things. We become preoccupied with things that don't satisfy. We move from the younger brother to the elder brother. As a matter of fact, in an inner healing prayer session, in a formational prayer se- session, I had talked about struggling with my view of God as shepherd. And so we were praying through that. And as we're praying, I had a, I had a picture of being a young boy on the father's shoulders. No care in the world, pointing out stuff, laughing, giggling. And as I saw that picture, I was like, well, is that okay? Because the father was taking me around, showing me off to everybody and just being like, this is my son. This is my son. And I was like, well, he's not supposed to show me off. I'm supposed to show him off. And then I realized, anytime I've ever seen a dad, the kid on his shoulders, I think, man, that's an awesome dad. That dad is an incredible dad. That dad loves his son. I don't look and think that son is amazing for being up there on his shoulders. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this, is, I, this might be from you, God. And, and I realized the father's love over me is that he just wants me to be a son on his shoulders walking around. And in that session, somebody said, where else do you see in Scripture somebody on or something on somebody's shoulders? That's exactly what the shepherd does in this first part of the parable. The shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders. And so God was saying to me, I am your dad and I want you on my shoulders. I want you to realize that you don't have to perform for my love. You don't have to have everyone like you for my love. I love you. You are on my shoulders and you are my son and you need to remember that. Instead of performing and thinking that my, your identity comes from that, thinking that God wants me to perform more and more and me struggling with, God, how can you be shepherd in that? When I realize that I am on his shoulders, I am overwhelmed with his love. As a matter of fact, I've shared with you already that in Luke 3, at Jesus' baptism, the Father says over the Son, you are my Son with whom I am well pleased. Every son and daughter longs to hear that from their Father. The word for spirit is parakaleo which is the same word that the father is talked about using to come alongside his, the elder son. He comes alongside and he reminds us of who we are. He reminds us that we're children. The only way that this can happen is if there's a substitute in our place. The father is looking upon his firstborn son as our substitute and is saying over you today, you are my son, you are my daughter. I am so pleased with you because my firstborn son died in your place. I gave up my very life. I gave up the person that was closest to me so that you can be on my shoulders. So I can just delight in you. You can rest in my love. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 18, verses 15 through 16, it says this, for we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear of approval, fear of performance. That's not in the text. I just put it in there. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Daddy, Abba. And Paul talks about this like chant where we're saying, Daddy, Daddy, coming back to his love. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Are you able to hear those words from the Father this morning? 
Are you able to hear from the Spirit of God that you are his son, you are his daughter with whom he delights? He just wants to show you off to his friends. He wants you to rest in his love. You see, every time we turn and repent of our sinfulness, the resurrection power through the Spirit moves into our hearts and moves us from being dead to being alive, from being utterly lost to being found. So Christ followers, even though you've received this gift, you need to receive this gift again. You need the Father's love all over again. As a matter of fact, the same gospel that your neighbors need your coworkers need, you need today. You need a reminder of Jesus' love. Just as you've received Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him. Remember his amazing love. Remember how he's overwhelmed you with so much love that you can't even comprehend it. Remember that. Come back to that and listen to what the Spirit has to say to you this morning, that you are his son, you are his daughter with whom he's well-pleased. Since the garden, we've been exiled from his presence and he's throwing a huge feast this morning. And he wants to welcome you home. Do you need to repent of being a people pleaser and an approval addict this morning? Would you return to your daddy's arms and just rest in him? Because I am telling you, when you rest in your daddy's arms, you won't be able to help but talk about it. In Acts, it says they couldn't help but talk about what they had seen and heard. Why? Because his love is so amazing. You don't have to try to get people to sell it. We don't have to like, teach you how to go evangelize. You just can't help it because his love is that good. Do you realize there's sheep without a shepherd everywhere? Do you realize the fatherlessness in this city? We, and in this country, in this world, people desperately need the love of the Father. The same gospel that you first believed, you need to re-believe over and over and over to really come back to God's love. You performance junkie this morning, trying to prove yourself, you need to return to the Father's love. For those of you who have never accepted the Father's free gift, his invitation is open this morning, and he just wants you to know, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, his love is even better than that. Far better, because he's the perfect Father in heaven. He celebrates you, he rejoices over you, and he longs for you to hear his voice. So we're going to take a minute right now and listen for the Father's voice through the Spirit of God this morning. Let's pray. Spirit of God, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice this morning. That we might hear you say over us, we are your sons, we are your daughters with whom you're well pleased. Thank you, Father, for your love. We are here just listening for any word, any picture you might bring to our minds.